0: You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant news-making issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP. While
1: well, much of our attention has recently been on the nuclear ambitions of North Korea Another crisis has been brewing in our hemisphere, and it is one that may have severe consequences on our economy and political stability as well in South America. To discuss Venezuela, our guest is Dr. Christopher Sabatini, who in addition to teaching at Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, is also the founder and executive director of Global Americans, where he edits the website latinamericagoesglobal.org. Regular listeners to Global IQ Minute will appreciate that I cannot help but highlight that Chris earned his M.A. and doctorate from my alma mater, the University of Virginia. Great to have you here. Thanks a lot,
2: Jim. It's great to be here.
1: You know, recently in The Guardian, I read your op-ed and you wrote that democracy died in Venezuela. But as you described it, and I quote, it has been a long, slow, painful, predictable slide to authoritarianism. Remind us briefly of some of the key steps that brought Venezuela to this brink.
2: Well, Venezuela before the election of Hugo Chavez in 1998, and he was sworn in 1999, obviously it had suffered from all the ills of being a, a petro-economy. It depended excessively on oil, there were gross inequalities. But what happened when Hugo Chavez was elected was really shortly after he was elected he convened a constituent assembly, rewrote the constitution, packed the Supreme Court. And when even that didn't work, he expanded the Supreme Court by 12 and packed it with more loyalists. Basically what happened was a very slow whittling away of the checks and balances of democracy in in Venezuela and in the Venezuelan government, but also a very slow but steady closing of political space, a closing of opposition newspapers and radio stations and television stations, as well as the shuttering of civil society organizations and their harassment. And it was predictable what was happening. But the problem with this sort of erosion of democracy from within, there was no sort of one single moment, like a coup d'etat, the old days, that one could point to. But now it's clear. There's no debating whether there's democracy in Venezuela. People spent a long time saying, well, it's competitive authoritarianism or it's a closing democracy. But now it's clear there are no checks and balances whatsoever. The National Assembly has been marginalized, rewriting yet another constitution, and there are no elections in sight.
1: You know, as you said, it has happened over a period of years. Is there a time where perhaps something could have happened to avert this, this crisis?
2: I think there was a time. I think the regional community was slow in acting. I think, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons having to do with an ideological shift within...
1: And when you say regional community, you mean the OAS? So I mean the Organization of American States. The mm-hmm. Organization of
2: American States in 1989 and 19, then 1991, it became an amendment to its charter, granted itself the authority to intervene to defend democracy. And then in actually September 11th, 2001, they signed what was called the charter, a democratic charter, that granted the OES the authority to convene and allow countries to apply sanctions in cases of the erosion of the checks and balances of democracy. That was never really invoked in Venezuela. And by the time this slide continued, people simply had lost the will. The region had become too ideologically fragmented. And also, quite frankly, Hugo Chavez, in the midst of an oil boom, had been able to buy out over 20 allies, giving them free petroleum, including, of course, Cuba and Nicaragua and others. And so he built an alliance that prevented anyone from doing anything. And I'll be quite frank, I think the academic community, including the United States, was somewhat delusional.
1: What is the status of Venezuela now within the OAS? Right now, it's actually pulled out of the OAS,
2: and it's a very sad statement. I think it speaks to a overall withering of the liberal democratic order that we're seeing in places like Russia and China. Venezuela is part of that as well. Well, it pulled out a few years ago from the Inter-American System of Human Rights, which is sort of the OAS's court system, if you will, over the closing of an opposition or an independent radio and TV station. And then recently, the OAS threatened to discuss Venezuela, not even sanction it, but to discuss it. And Venezuela simply
1: said, we no longer belong. What about the membership with, what is it, Mercosur?
2: Mercosur, and this is an indication of how far the region went drift is Mercosur is, a, as you know, a customs union, a common market that includes Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Brazil. And they They invited Venezuela to belong. They also have a democracy clause, but they invited Venezuela to join. Even while it was clear Venezuela was on a very quick path towards dictatorship, they've now kicked Venezuela out. But it had never even met the basic economic requirements of the common market either. So there's no reason even economically for it to be there.
1: You know, we're really looking at perhaps humanitarian crisis because I was reading in The Economist and some of the articles as well that you've written and saw that income per person is now back where it was in 1950. Give us a sense of what you're seeing as far as food shortages and what really has been the impact on the population.
2: It's difficult to fathom just how far Venezuela has sunk. Let me give you a few different dimensions. So one is, as you mentioned, Jim, the humanitarian crisis. The malnutrition, about 20% of the children now are malnourished. They say that anywhere from 30 to 40% of basic foodstuffs are not available on grocery shelves right now. Medicines or hospitals that are going without medicines, without electricity, including psychiatric hospitals, the New York Times did a very painful story about people who can't get their medicines. In addition, of course, Caracas is one of the murder capitals of the world. What you're seeing in these cases is not just an economic crisis. The economy has contracted by over 20% in recent years. I mean, inflation is reaching a 1,000%. Mm. What we're also seeing is a complete breakdown of society, almost a Durkheimian anomie, uh, where there are no rules.
1: Are children able to go to school?
2: There is school, but the strikes are common, both the opposition strikes, as well as the fact that the schools, and you know, this is what makes this so sinister, the schools have also been infiltrated with Chavista or Bolivarian, as the ideology is called, textbooks and the like. So the quality of education, and they've also closed down independent and in particular Catholic schools, which are Fe and Alegria, which are an independent and very quality-oriented school,
1: they'd close those down. I think that's what's always so heartbreaking when you see these type of crises, whether it be Syria or Afghanistan, where there's literally a generation that is unable to go to elementary school, and then how do they ever catch up?
2: And this is the issue, this is completely unprecedented in the hemisphere. Uh, Venezuela went from being one of the richest countries in the hemisphere to basically becoming Haiti, but worse.
1: You know, last week we had Megan O'Sullivan, who just came out with her book Windfall, and she talked about how we continue to import I think what 700 or so 700,000 barrels of oil a day does that make it difficult for us to impose sanctions, or how does that stand?
2: It does. It's a very delicate dance right now. The, um, because
1: Citco is owned Sitco by... is
2: owned by Venezuela, although actually in a, in a sort of a shell game, Rosneft, the Rosneft, Russian oil company bought part of Citco, but now it's been... There's a back to Venezuela. Yeah, there's a hole to sort of bail them out of their fiscal crisis. The problem is that Venezuela owes about $8 billion worth of debt service in the next couple months. It isn't clear uh, where it will get that. If we impose oil sanctions, it will quite likely default. What is the a,
1: deadline for the debt payment? I, I don't actually know. It's, okay. it's
2: within the next, I think by March actually, mm-hmm. is, is, is what when all that's due. Um, and, and the risk is that by cutting off uh, so much of its oil, and we also actually export light crude to Venezuela so that it can mix it with its heavier crude and re-export to other countries. So we're very closely tied economically. But if we really clamp down on that main source of income, and Venezuela depends on, 95% of its exports depend on of oil, it will throw it even further into crises in terms of a humanitarian crisis. And the problem is, is this is a government that does not yield. It doesn't. This isn't going to buckle to normal sanctions. It is going to take the country as far down as it has to to stay in power.
1: Well, President Trump talked about various options that the United States has, including perhaps a military one. I don't think you would would, would agree with that. But what are our options?
2: I think the options right now, it was announced today, today's uh, a Wednesday that um, the opposition, the government, may sit back down to negotiated talks. Those have failed consistently, as I wrote in a foreign affairs article, because, um, and William Zartman, who's a political scientist, wrote a great piece about looking at mediation efforts, and he said the two things that they need to succeed, are, one is to be based on international norms of human rights, and the second is to have the threat of sanctions behind them, and the Venezuelan mediation talks before never had those. Now they're gonna sit back at the table, uh, Macron and France is threatening sanctions if the government walks away. Um, I think it's up to the other regional governments now, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Peru, the EU, and others, to basically force this government to negotiate in earnest. And if not, we're
1: looking at a failed state?
2: Then you're, look, you're already looking at a failed state. I, I think right now it's just a question of how
1: deep it digs. I want to thank you very much for being thank a guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank, thank you, you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys and 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.